All right, we are going through, we're still in our book of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to the book of Ephesians. We are in Ephesians chapter 6. We started this uh, probably in about February. We started this series and we've been working through the book of Ephesians. A great, kind of a roller coaster, if you will. I've been no, we've been noting that uh, the book of Ephesians kind of starts, if you will, starts soft and gets harder and harder and harder and harder. Like the, the first chapter is about God, you know, God chose you, he elected you, he loves you. And then chapter six is like, all right, now put on the armor, we're going to war. Like we're not there yet, we're gonna be there in a couple of weeks. But, but as, as Paul goes through this, it's about knowing our identity. He starts, the first three chapters are about knowing and understanding our, is about our identity. You've been chosen, you've been adopted, you have an inheritance. You've been deeply loved. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. You've been sealed by the Spirit of God. Let me just say this. If you put your faith in Jesus, you've been sealed by the Spirit of God, a non-refundable down payment. Amen Amen is right. There is the hope. It's not a fuzzy, hopefully, it's not a fuzzy optimism that we have as Christians. It is a sure hope. It's not a fuzzy optimism that we look forward to the day when Jesus returns and we say that with conviction. There are riches of mercy and of grace. And that's only chapter one, right? That's chapter one of Ephesians. There's riches of mercy and grace. Chapter two, salvation is by grace through faith. And that those who experience that salvation would experience an experience of faith, an experience of hope, an experience of love, an experience of power and empowerment. And that's mostly about chapter two. You who are far off have been brought near. If you have felt far from God ever in your life, God has gone out to you because that's what he's like. Look, we're only two, that's only two chapters into Ephesians, right? And it already resonates, right? Like this, the, this book of Ephesians resonates with us. By the time you get to chapter three, you start moving off of yourself and Paul starts saying, and it's not just you. It's everyone who's far off. He did it for you, but he's done it for everyone who's far off. He came to preach peace to those who are far off. And there's this great mystery. The mystery was we we didn't really realize it. We thought that salvation was just for the insiders, those who had been born into the right place and at the right time, those who loved God. But no, salvation is not just for them. Salvation is for the outsiders, and God's plan is to go get them and bring them in. And that's when the book starts getting a little less comfortable, right? Like the DMV is going to show up at our church, right? And that, that this is not, it's not as, 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 when I think about salvation as it relates to me, that, that's, that's, a, that's a grounding experience, a sure experience. But then when I start thinking about salvation relating to other people, like, my gosh, God loves that person. Like that's when it starts to get a little bit uncomfortable. In like chapter three, the apostle Paul has been building on this foundation of God has done this for you, but he's also done it for people you don't think he ought to have done it for. And God is in the process of offering that peace. And when you gather together in this weird mix of ethnicities, social status, resources, skills, and interest, you're making it known to the dark forces of this world that Jesus can gather a group of people that no force in this world can separate. 
Jesus can hold together any diverse group of people around the gravitational center of Jesus and Jesus alone. And sometimes when we see churches splinter and scatter, we realize in hindsight that that gathering was not held together. It was held together by a different gravitational pull. There was something else. And when that gets broken, there's a scattering. But when a church gathers around the supremacy of Jesus, that last song we sang, the powerful name of Jesus. Look where I'm standing now, not because of what we've done or we do it the right way, but because of Jesus. And we come together because of him. We realize that that has a stronger bond than anything else in all of creation. And that's what we come here to do. That's only the first three chapters, everybody. Right? That's, that's the first three chapters of Ephesians. And if you're going to do this, you're going to be rooted and grounded in love. If you're going to gather around the gravitational center of Jesus, you're going to be rooted and grounded in love, in self-emptying love. And then the second half of the book is about walking then. If this is what you should know and understand, then how should we then walk in this world? Well, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Walk in a manner worthy of of that calling. God has called you, he's adopted you, he's loved you, given you an inheritance, and he's done it for others. Now walk in a manner worthy. And the second half, if the first half is primarily about knowing and understanding, the second half is about walking. And we've talked a lot about walking in here. Walking is to be done together. There are many differences, but there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Right? That's chapter 4. And our walking is not to be done in futility or vanity, like the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanities. Don't walk like that. Don't walk like the author of Ecclesiastes who is like, I've seen everything under the sun and it's all meaningless. Don't walk like that. Walk in wisdom. Put away falsehood and anger and stealing and slander, undisciplined sexuality and drunkenness. Don't grieve the Spirit, but be filled with the Spirit. And that's chapter 4 and 5. And Paul brings this walking worthy of the calling into the household. And we're in the middle of this household code. Last week we talked about this household code that talks about the obligations of husbands and wives. And in the ancient world it was just about the obligations of the wives and the husbands. But Paul stands it on its head, addresses the wives first, the honor of first, of first address, and talks about not only do you have obligations, but your husbands have obligations. And that a marriage, a marriage will be permeated with these ideas of self-yielding love and self-emptying love. And God calls a marriage to be a model of the self-yielding and self-emptying love. You can listen to that sermon last week. But we see Paul will continue to address this household code. And we talked about in the ancient world that there are, we, we actually have what Paul writes here in this section where it talks about husbands, wives, children, parents, slaves, masters. This is what is called a household code. And you can read these from the ancient world. And one of the things that we can do when we come to a passage like this is we can compare those standard codes to what Paul is doing here and to ask the question, how is Paul doing the same thing that culture is doing, but also to ask the question, where is Paul bucking against culture? 
Where's the Apostle Paul and this idea that Jesus, that Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is saved, and Jesus has formed this new community? How is now Paul moving away from some of the standard operating procedures of the ancient world? And we're going to see a few more as it relates to children and parents, as well as to slaves and masters. You guys with me? So now that we're all caught up here on Ephesians and where we're at, this is where we are. We're in chapter five or chapter six. We're beginning our last chapter, chapter six. Let's turn to chapter six, verse one, and let's hear this passage again. I want to say a few things about the children and parent section, and then I want to say some things about the slave master section as we move into our time around the Lord's table here today. All right, Ephesians six one says this: Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Quote, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Unquote. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. All right. Similarly to um, husbands and wives, we don't really, we're not really able to understand this passage. We understand what's going on in the ancient world. Like, for example, little into the Greco-Roman and Jewish world of the first century that Paul's writing into, 2,000 years ago. So the power of fathers was almost unlimited in the Greco-Roman world. The power of fathers was almost unlimited. They could do pretty much whatever they wanted to. The only thing that would really hold them back was public opinion. But every, there were no laws against fathers doing, treating or mistreating anyone in any way. They determined whether a newborn baby had the right to live or die. We mentioned last week that oftentimes female babies, when they were born, because they were not going to be legitimate heirs, they would oftentimes be exposed. They would be sent out to the countryside to die, or they would be sold off as slaves. Fathers had that control. They could punish children as harshly as they wished or work them as hard as they wished. Only public opinion served as restraint. Now, not every father was horrible. That, I mean, those are horrible examples, right? And in the ancient world, you don't have, that's not the entirety, but that is, though there's a, a pendulum on which, or there's a spectrum of, of, of which fathers existed in the ancient world. But a good father or a bad father meant the difference between being trained up in love or raised in cruelty. And there are examples in the literature and the record in the ancient world of both of those going on. Much like that's the same today. A strangely contemporary description of our society, is it not? So Paul's instruction then has a background to it that we should understand. So here's some things that Paul does the same from the ancient world and some things that he does differently. So the first thing that he does the same is he addresses fathers, but like the husbands and wives, he doesn't address fathers first. Who does he address first? Children. This is a departure from the standard in the household codes that Paul is going to give the honor of first address to the lesser or who are perceived as the lesser in authority, he he offers instruction first to children. So Paul addresses, so it says in 6.1, children obey your parents. The other thing that Paul does differently is this does not say sons obey your parents. Typically, in the ancient world, the only member, the only, uh, the only children that were addressed in household codes were the sons. And Paul uses a more generic term, technon, children, 
rather than sons or daughters. Children, obey your parents, which implies that not only are boys being addressed, but also girls. Also to the idea that he is addressing not just children, but also adult children as well. Although this seems to be addressed primarily to the youngers, which is really interesting to think that those who are younger are in the, they're, they're in the assembly while this letter is being read out. So we have not only they're, they're present for instruction, wives are present for the instruction, daughters are present for the instruction. This is a departure from the conventions of the ancient world, and it shows how the early followers of Jesus, when they gathered together, they did, they leveled it out. They brought people in and raised the status of people who were perceived on the outside and brought in. Paul is modeling this idea of those who are far off are now brought in. And he addresses children. It says, obey your parents, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. So the instruction is twofold, to obey and to honor. Now, this is one thing that the Apostle Paul does not depart from from the ancient world. In the ancient world, um, the paramount virtue was to honor your father and mother. That was in the Jewish world, but also in the Greco-Roman world. That was the paramount thing. Your parents were the most important, and you were to honor them. And some of you guys are like, yes, until we start thinking about our own father and mother, right? We're like, no, it's not about just you are the most important. It's about the parents and the older would, have, would be perceived as the most uh, wise and also the one to be most cared for. The honoring would not just be for small children to parents, but it would be particularly for adult parent, adults to their, um, to their aging parents as well. Paul appeals to the fifth commandment in Exodus 20, verse 12, that to honor your father and mother, the commandment with a promise. Now, the, the nature of what it means to obey and honor your parents probably depends on how old you are, right? So, Tracy was reading up here earlier, and she was like, children, obey your parents. It almost sounded like, you know, a mom talking to her, like, hey, children, obey your parents, right? It had that, it had a little bit of that tone. I, I, I appreciate that from Tracy, right? And we would, we would imagine that the younger we are, the more we're on the obey side. The older we get, the more we go to the honor side, we honor our parents as we grow older, and the amount of obedient, obeying, right, as we are trained up and as we become adult, we shift more from obey and honor to now the honoring comes closer. And certainly in our society, we see how we treat our aging parents as a means of honoring our parents, and certainly with the command that we have in the New Testament of when you get married, you leave your father and mother, and you cleave to your wife, leaving and cleaving, right? That you form your new family. It still means even though you are not, you, your, your new allegiances as husband and wife are to each other, it does not mean that we abandon the idea of honoring our fathers and mothers. Although in our, probably we still need to thread that needle, don't we, Right? We have, to, we have to figure out how to become a new family while we honor our fathers and mothers at the same time. So Paul obviously would have more to say here, but this is kind of a stock uh, way of, of bringing the household code to life in here. Then he turns in verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What is translated, bring them up, 
I don't know if you have in your translation, it says, bring them up in the Lord. The verb there is the verb to nourish, nourish them. Nourish them. It's about nurture, it's about feeding, it's about growing them up, nurturing them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That word discipline is also the word training. So, so one of the things, um, and you know, one of the things that comes up here is we, it talks about don't, don't uh, exasperate your children or don't provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And one of the things we might ask as parents, maybe your parents of young kids, is just how do we go about disciplining or punishing? Like, do you spank? Do you, uh, you know, how, how do you go about, do you do timeouts? Like, how do you go about doing that? And I, when we were raising kids, there was a book that came out and it was called um, Growing Kids God's Way. And maybe some of you are big fans of that book, maybe not. Um, it, I do think it's a pretty ambitious title. <laughs> I, we did already talk about like with, in marriage, like, look, there's a, there's a limited amount of material, right, in the Bible about how to do these things. And so, and also written into a world where there's a lot of different uh, ways of accomplishing these things. I think the one thing just um, for myself that I have uh, thought about when it comes to what's the, what do we do in, when we're raising our children and um, this idea of discipline or punishment? One of the rules that I kind of um, came, uh, came to the conclusion about and was taught is that there, there's, a dis, there's a difference between discipline and punishment. Discipline and punishment. The word discipline in, in Greek is about training. It's about instruction. When we discipline our children, say they do something wrong. Okay? You're like, do I punish them or do I discipline them? You're like, isn't that the same thing? I'm like, and no, it's not. Okay? Punishment, punishment is something that's punitive, is meant to punish for the past. You did something in the past, and now you get punished for it. Oftentimes in Scripture, punishment is not remedial. It's just punishment for the sake of doing something wrong. Like, for example, hell will not, hell is punishment. It's not remedial. It, it, it's not to make people better. It's not purgatorial, right? It's not like, hey, we're, you're, you're going through this hard time so you can come out better on the other end. Like, that's not the nature. Like, punishment is not about making you better. It's about punishing you for the past. Discipline, on the other hand, is about thinking about the future. Discipline is about thinking about the next time. And so that might be, a, and you might be saying, look, Pastor Craig, you're kind of splitting hairs, but I don't think I am in this sense. When we, when we look at our children and they do something wrong, and we say, okay, they've got to learn this lesson, they've got to figure out this lesson, not because we want to punish them for the past, but because we want to prepare them for the future, about the next time. The next time you come to this situation, I want you to know what you did here was not right. There's a better way. And so however we get to that, certainly reasoning with them is a good way. But there's also, I think, times when we come to a situation like that where we say, look, there are, there are consequences that, that help us to think about what we've done and move into the next phase, whether that is a slap on the hand when, when they're young or spanking or something like that. But discipline and instruction is for the future. Now, it seems as though, I would say, that in the ancient world, as well as today, those sorts of things can get out of hand, which is probably precisely why Paul writes this, that he says not to provoke your children to anger. 
Elsewhere, it talks about don't exasperate. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Like, don't take your authority and pile it so heavily upon them that they cannot get up from underneath it, that they cannot move into the future. And I know that many of you, many of you, your kids are grown and out of the house, but maybe you have grandkids or great-grandkids, or you're even, maybe you're young and you're thinking about you know, am I going to get married? How am I going to raise kids? This is a time to start thinking about those sorts of things. What is appropriate and be able to talk about that? And the Apostle Paul, he kind of, he tries to thread this needle once again. And it's not, it's not that, look, fathers, you can do whatever you want to do because that was what it was in the ancient world. Apostle Paul says, look, fathers, you have an obligation here. You have an obligation not to pile up on your children punishment, not to provoke anger in them, but to figure out what discipline and instruction looks like. What sort of father you have will determine whether you are brought up in love or whether you are raised in cruelty. That was true in the ancient world, and that's true today. And parents, fathers, and mothers, we have an obligation to our children. Maybe not as much of an obligation today as... um, Some might say, I'm reading a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. Has anybody read this book? The Coddling of the American Mind. I would recommend it, but it talks about the culture of safetyism now that we're in here and um, that, you know, we can't, I remember when I was a kid and I wasn't, you know, I I feel like I'm the old person now and I'm like, back in my day, we would ride our bikes around and, you know, we wouldn't call, we wouldn't have the phones and da-da-da-da-da, we did this and that and the other thing. And Well, it was true. I mean, I like got hurt. I was out, you know, riding my bike, I'd crash and whatever. And uh, there's a new movement out. It's called free-range parenting. Free-range parenting. It's not helicopter parenting or snowplow parenting. It's free-range parenting. Let your kids go have some adventures. And I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of fear around that sort of thing. But I would just encourage us, as we do think about this, that it, it's not, safety is not the goal. Good children is, a good, is the goal. And we have to figure out how, where, that, where that all works. There's a pendulum that swings, but I think we can all agree that we are in an era where there is helicopter parenting and snowplow parenting, and I think we need to figure out what the, how to get to this idea of a free-range parenting strategy where there's appropriate safety, but there's appropriate risk. All right, there you go. That's just a little bit of my, a little bit of Pastor Craig's thoughts there on parenting. Um, I suppose do, you can listen or not on that one. There's, there's, it's, sometimes it's thus saith the Lord, and there's sometimes it's like, hey, that's just my, my best thought on that. So there's a lot of ways this is not growing kids God's way. Too ambitious. There are hundreds of ways to raise your children. But I would just say that we have to figure out that line between safety and adventure, learning the lessons rather than having the road paved for you. The, the proverb, um, prepare your child for the road, not the road for the child. All right. Okay. So I, there, thank you for sticking with me on that, everybody. You don't get that. It's not like round amens. It's not like you've been adopted by God. Amen. Free-range parenting, crickets. Okay. Uh, here we go. All right, let's keep going there. So that's, that's really what we hear about children and parents. And again, we don't get a lot of that stuff, and we do need to understand that this is in a world where it was kind of everything goes for fathers, but, um, but here we have the obligations of fathers being highlighted. All right. 
All right, the second thing about this passage, so it starts in, the, in this whole, the whole code, husbands or wives and husbands, then it goes to children and parents, and then it goes to slaves and masters. And Paul will continue with the code, the household code, in a way that is frankly foreign to us in the 21st century world. So what I want to do is I want to read this, and then I want to say something about slavery in the ancient world and um, how we ought to think about this or what we might think about this today. 6.5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. All right, so a passage like this cannot simply be read on its face in a 21st century church. This is a 2,000-year-old passage, and it deserves some explanation as we read it out loud here. I don't want to um, figure that everyone understands what this is saying about slaves and masters, and in a world where slavery is illegal. How are we to understand this? How are we to understand that the Apostle Paul, does he, uh, does he, uh, is he saying that slavery is okay by addressing slaves and masters? How should we understand this? All right, so again, back to the ancient world. What was it like in the ancient world? As one author puts it, in the Greco-Roman world, slavery was so much a part of life that hardly anyone thought about whether it might be legitimate. It was so much part of life. It was considered an economic and practical necessity. It was assumed as part of the social structure of the day. As many as one-third of the people in Greece and Rome were slaves. Let me say that again. One-third of the population, as much as one-third of the population were counted as slaves in the ancient world. When Paul addresses slaves, which by the way, the fact that he actually addresses slaves in a teaching context is an amazing situation. He doesn't just address masters. He doesn't even address masters first. He addresses slaves, implying that in the worship setting are both slaves and masters worshiping alongside each other. Paul is addressing an enormous number of people here. How did people become slaves in the ancient world? Here's a few ways. Some were born into slavery. If you were born to a slave, you would have been born into slavery. Or you may have been abandoned. We talk about exposing infants. Infants that were exposed were oftentimes gathered up by various groups. Sometimes temples with temple prostitution would get the female babies. Oftentimes gladiator schools would get the male babies and raise them that way. Or people would just get them and raise them and have them as slaves. Look, it's horrible. You should give thanks for where you live in the era that you have been born into. Anyway, I don't, again, I don't want to, let's keep going. Okay. Um, some parents actually didn't abandon their children, but some parents sold their children into slavery. 
If you could not pay your debts, you would find yourself in a position of slavery. If you were taken captive in war, you were often sold into slavery. Believe it or not, some people actually voluntarily went into slavery, attaching themselves to a well-off family to, to raise their status in the world. People actually voluntarily did this. One thing that was not a factor in the ancient world was race. Race was not something that moved you into slavery simply de facto based on race or skin tone. There was no doubt for many slaves that life was harsh and cruel, but their circumstances depended on their owners. They didn't merely work menial work, they did all the work. Slaves did all the work, including management. Management positions were slaves. Slaves would oftentimes be over households or over businesses. They would oftentimes be more educated than their owners because they were useful. They could own property. There was no slave class, but slaves were present in almost all strata of society. Many slaves would gain their own freedom at the age of 30. But some were still, but they would still be under some obligation to their former owners. And I, I paint that picture because oftentimes when we think about slavery, we think about 18th and 19th century uh, Southern America. Not Southern America, South America, but the United States of America in the South. We think about cotton plantations and, uh, and hard labor. where um, slavery was about harsh and manual labor and also about race. And pass- and passages like this were employed to justify ungodly and immoral practices. Even Christians would use this passage to perpetuate harsh conditions and immoral conditions to preserve culture and power. Slavery and enslaving people is illegal today, just so you know. (laughs) Don't leave here without understanding that. Um, Trafficking humans, holding people against their will, or or trapping people in economic disadvantage is unjust and immoral. And even as we have laws on the books against slavery, it still has not stopped human trafficking It still has not stopped entirely unjust economic practices, and we still need to be vigilant about those things today. When we read this passage, and it's just, I want to walk through, with that in mind, I want us to think about this passage, and a couple things, look at 6.5, it says, bond servants obey your earthly masters, and I don't know what it is, but I don't like that translation, sorry about that, it's okay, ESV is awesome, but there's a couple things, it, 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 it kind of softens the word slave, the word there is doulos, which means slave, it doesn't mean bond servant, it means slave, there we go, so, I, so I'm, I'm hearing my echo. <laughs> so we have uh, uh, I'm sorry I'm, I'm, I threw me off there um, bond servants obey your earthly masters is really um, slaves obey your lords the word master is also the word lord and the reason I bring that up with that first line is because the apostle Paul wants to make a point about those two terms doulos and kurios servants or slaves and lords. 
And he says, this is obey, he says, um, slaves, obey your lords in the flesh. And the reason he calls the masters lords in the flesh is because if you look down in verse 9, he's going to say something. He says, now he says, masters, lords, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their Lord and yours in heaven. See, you're a Lord in the flesh, but Jesus is a Lord in the heavens. And by saying he is your Lord, he's saying, look, these people, these, these slaves are in this situation and they have, a, they have a master, a Lord in the flesh, and that's you. But they also have a Lord in heaven and you also have a Lord in heaven. In other words, they're not the only slaves in this equation. If you've given your life to Jesus, masters, you are also in a position of submission to the Lord. You need to obey your Lord as they are called to obey their Lord. He goes on to say, look, when obey, obey your earthly lords, your, your lords according to the flesh, but do the will of God. Again, back to this idea, is there a point where they're not to obey? Look, doing something immoral, and actually it was really interesting in the ancient world, it was kind of this thing like, you should do immoral things for your your. For if you're a slave, for your Lord, your master, you should do immoral things. But I think Paul is saying here, no, 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 no. You should not be doing immoral things. You need to do the will of the Lord. You have a Lord, a master in heaven. Masters, you too are a doulos. You're a slave under a Lord in heaven. And the fact that he says, the fact that, the fact that Paul actually says in 6.9, he talks about what the, the obligations of the slave, and you know, he's, he, don't do it with eye service, don't, you've got to please the Lord. And then he says to the masters, hey, what I just said to the slaves, you do the same. What? Who do you think you're talking to, Paul? Paul's like, no, I know exactly who I'm talking to. You are a slave of Jesus. So you take the same attitude as your slave. Like when you think about what he's saying here, this is amazingly countercultural what Paul is writing. And I would actually make the argument that he's setting a trajectory here for saying, look, slavery, slavery is immoral. There were already some Jewish sects like the Essenes that believed that slavery on its face was immoral. But there are, very, there are no others in the ancient world that slavery was just part of society. But the Apostle Paul seems to be taking up this idea that there is a radical changing of this relationship. As a matter of fact, in order to understand this passage, I want you to just turn over real quick over to the book of um, Philemon. You're like the book of Philemon what? Um, Philemon, it is, uh, it's right before the book of Hebrews. It is the last book of the, of the Pauline corpus after Titus, little Timmy, Titus, Philemon, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. The book of Philemon is one chapter. How many people have read the book of Philemon? Awesome, a lot of hands. How many people have ever heard a sermon on the book of Philemon? Awesome. Oh, God, yes, excellent. So the book of Philemon is a, is a, is a very interesting book. But um, Philemon, Philemon is written to a well-to-do man in the city of Colossae, 
Okay, now we talked about the book of Ephesians. Here's, here's my theory about the way this works. Some of these books work together. So the book of Ephesians is probably a circulated letter. Circular, we talked about that back in the first, uh, the first week we looked at the book of Ephesians. It was probably brought over from Rome, dropped off in the, book of, uh, in the city of Ephesus, and then it made its way around the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. This is all southwestern Turkey, okay? All down in southwestern Turkey. And Laodicea, the last stop, was part of a three-city region, the Lycus River Valley. And in this three-city region, Laodicea was the biggest. And then you had Hierapolis, which was, was kind of a, um, a, really a picturesque city on the top of a hill with, anyway. Um, and then Colossae. They were all about 10 miles apart from each other, forming a little triangle. And Colossae was just down to the south of Laodicea, about 10 miles south of Laodicea. And the book of Colossians is written to the city of Colossae. Philemon is a man in Colossae. It's very likely that all, and there's very, a lot of similarities between Ephesians and Colossians. The best, I, I think that the best theory is that those who were delivering the book of Ephesians were also delivering the book of Colossians. They came into Ephesus. They dropped off the, the, the correspondence to the Ephesians. That makes its way around while they make a beeline to Colossae, where they deliver the book of Colossians and the letter of Philemon. Now, that's a lot. But what it means is that the book of Ephesians and the book of Philemon are written at the same time, on the same occasion. Now, the book of Philemon is this. This is the story. The story of the book of Philemon is about the story of a slave named Onesimus. Philemon was the owner of Onesimus. He had this, he had this slave who ran away. And Onesimus, presumably, for one reason or another, got away from Philemon. And Onesimus ended up, by the way, the name Onesimus means useful. Slaves were, would often get names that were like lucky or useful or something like that. Um, more like adjectives than actual personal names. But he makes his way probably to Rome to find the Apostle Paul and it seems that Onesimus hears the gospel and gives his life to Jesus. This slave, this runaway slave, gives his life to Jesus and he stays with the Apostle Paul and helps him in his ministry probably in Rome. Now, Paul knew that Onesimus had run away from Philemon's household and wanted to stay above board in the culture and so decided he would send Onesimus back to Philemon. He sends him back with Epaphras, who's carrying the letters and delivering these letters. So he chooses to send Onesimus back to Philemon where any sort of fate could be expected for a runaway slave harsh punishment, even death. And then Paul writes an amazingly socially complex letter of recommendation to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. I'm going to read a portion of it right now. If you want to read along, look at verse 8. Philemon 8. What is Paul's attitude towards this runaway slave who has become a Christian as he is sending him back to his owner, Philemon. He says this, Accordingly, though I, Paul, am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, 
Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. See what he did there? Useful? All right. Verse 12. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him here with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Now listen to this. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." What Paul is doing here is he's advocating for Onesimus. And he's encouraging Onesimus who could, who had all, I'm sorry, or he's encouraging Philemon who had all control, who could have killed Philemon, could have killed Onesimus, he could have punished him, or he can set him free. There's lots of ways he could go, or he could keep him, like it's not up to Paul to say what he should do, but Paul has in mind what he ought to do. And that is this. Inside of the church, Onesimus and Philemon are not master and slave. What are they? They're brothers. You walk through that door, whatever you were out there has been transformed. You walk in here, you have experienced the same salvation that makes you brothers. And the Apostle Paul is saying, When you gather around the gravitational center of Jesus, it transforms the relationships that you have out there, and it provides a new set of eyes by which you look at each other. And when we take a passage like this and a passage like Ephesians chapter 6, we talk about slaves and masters, it seems as though the Apostle Paul is really setting a trajectory. It's time to do what's right. I don't want to compel you, but I want to give you the opportunity to do what is right. And maybe maybe he's not just trying to butter up. Sometimes you read this and you're like, Paul, you're really laying it on thick. But it might have been because Philemon wanted to do the right thing, but all the pressure around him from unbelieving masters is like, you got to make an example out of that slave. Philemon, you got to make an example. And he says, well, I'd, I'd love to make an example, but look, the Apostle Paul said this, I need to do what's right. Like the letter, it's an entirely complex letter and situation that's going on, but the Apostle Paul is saying, at the bottom of all this is that you are no longer master-slave, you are brothers. Brother-brother relationship in the ancient world was the strongest bond. It was stronger even than husband-wife, stronger than children-parent. Brother-brother, that was the strongest relationship you could have in the ancient world. And Paul says, that's what you have, not a slave. And then, you know, you have, what is it, the, um, 
I was thinking about the, the Christmas carol, O Holy Night, right? That chain shall he break, for the slave is our brother. That, that's from Philemon. That comes right out of the Philemon that he is now your brother. Paul demonstrates the self-emptying love of Jesus. By, by the way, on this, I, I have to tell this story because every time I think about Philemon, um, I was teaching a class one summer up at Fuller, and one of, the, um, one of my students in the class was a uh, Syrian Orthodox priest. And um, in the class I was teaching, we did these interpretive um, practices and exercises, and one of them was on the book of Philemon, to read the book of Philemon and to talk about what's the major argument in the book and just to work through all that. And, he, and we came to class that day, and you know, for me, I'm like, it's a one-chapter book. It's kind of a flyover. It's kind of a novelty. Like you guys are like, I even forgot it was in the New Testament. And we got to, to class, and he, he came up, and he was like, uh, Professor Hill, I'm so excited about our discussion today on Philemon. And I was like, why? He goes, well, where I come from, Orthodox priests are often called to step in to conflict in our community and mediate the conflict. And he goes, and the book of Philemon is about that mediation. He goes, as a matter of fact, um, for me, and that's just not for me as a priest, for me, my brother was killed by a man. And the priest showed up at our house to reconcile us to that man. So I want to see what Paul is doing here. What, what is his role? What's my role as a priest, as a reconciler, as someone who steps to the plate on behalf of someone else? That's what Paul's doing here. And by doing that, he's modeling the self-emptying love of Jesus. Even though I, Paul, the apostle Paul, the prisoner for Christ, I'm not going to hold on to that status. I'm going to empty myself on behalf of this young man, Onesimus. You see later on, he says, whatever he's cost you, I will repay it on his behalf. And then he writes in his own hand, I owe you. Because Paul steps in to mediate that as part of his love for Jesus, as part of his modeling of what Jesus looks like, he steps in for that. I will never look at the book of Philemon the same way again. It is a radical text about how Christians are called to take their status and advocate for those who cannot advocate for themselves. The gospel went out and changed this person's life. And now, when they all come in, Paul, Philemon, Onesimus, what are they? Apostle, master, slave? No, they're brothers. They're brothers because they gather around the same table. 